I remember as a child there was a movie about killer bees, and I remember being absolutely terrified of this movie. And then a few years ago there was a story about murder hornets. So it's safe to say that bees and killing bees have quite the bad rap. Today we may be able to clear up some of that. My name is Louis Colabertolo, I am not a killer bee, but I am a graduate student at the University of Guelph trying my absolute best to get a PhD in food science, and when I should be doing my work, but I am certainly not, I like to talk to other graduate students about what they're doing and why it impacts us all. Today we are going to talk to Alvaro de la Mora Peña, who studies bees with, well, uh, let's just say a checkered past. He's trying to figure out how we can get bees to kill mites. So if the thought of homicidal bees hasn't already gotten you excited enough, let's listen to a clip of what Alvaro has to say about that. So those adult bees are able to open that cell, remove that mite, and kill it. Since true crime podcasts are so popular nowadays, we are going to capitalize on that and start the show. But... Before we get going, keep in mind, we're both graduate students, we don't know everything, and that's why you're listening to an episode of We Know Some Stuff. Hi Alvaro, how are you doing today? Hi Luigi, thank you so much for the invitation, I am doing well. That is wonderful to hear. Before we get into the nitty gritty, before we get started, could you tell me and everyone listening your educational background? Sure. Well, I studied veterinary medicine at the National University of Mexico. In that uh, university, I focused on honeybees, and I got my degree doing an internship here at the University of Guelph 10 years ago, uh, working with a parasite that is a fungus that affects intestines or the digestions in the, in the bee. This fungi reproduces in the intestine of the bees and affects the digestion. So after I got my degree, I started a master's in science, and I studied the interaction between a mite and some pesticides. I did my master's degree in Mexico, and two years ago, I started here my PhD program at the Honeybee Research Center at the University of Wales. Okay, I understand that we are here today to talk about your PhD research, but also the intestines of bumblebees. That sounds like really interesting. Oh, yes. The last thing I think I would have ever thought about. When I woke up this morning, no part of me was thinking about the intestines of a bumblebee. Yes. Well, in this case, I don't work, I don't work with, honey, with bumblebees. I work with honeybees, with Apis mellifera. Oh. Yes. In bumblebees. <laughs> <laughs> I'm learning. Yes, exactly. Well, me too. In bumblebees also are affected by a subspecies of this fungus. But the particular experiment or the particular agent that I worked with, the name is Nosema serrani, and it's a microsporidium that replicates inside the epithelium of the intestine. So this fungus is able to reproduce or replicate thousands of spores just seven days after the fungus and the spores get inside the intestine of the bees. That sounds bad. <laughs> yes, it sounds bad. All right. Could we, let's back up. Let's go to the beginning of this, because I walked into this conversation thinking bumblebees and honeybees were the same thing. And it turns out they're not. No, they are not. They are two different species. All right. 
What is the difference? Do bumblebees not make honey? Do honeybees not bumble? Well, there is an excellent question, Luigi. The difference, I will focus the difference in commercial aspect. The difference is that the bumblebees are used mainly for pollinating crops. The nest of the majority of bumblebees is underground. If we wanted to get honey from them, it will be really hard. And for honeybees, we can use the we can use them for pollination purposes or for honey production. And there are differences talking about the pollination that we are I want to compare them uh, the, and stress the difference is that in the greenhouses the bumblebees are better to pollinate crops inside the greenhouses because they go to the flowers and honeybees go towards the light. So sometimes they go outside and they are not focused a lot, uh, a lot in pollinating the crops within the greenhouses. An interesting fact about bumblebees is that in tomato plants, tomato plants need a vibration. So flowers need a vibration to release the pollen. So the bumblebee, when they buzz, they make that vibration and they release the pollen easily. This is so interesting. I'm, I'm like blown away by this. All right, so, so follow-up questions. Bumblebees, they live in the ground, which, you know what? Another thing I never thought about today. Bumblebees live in the ground. I don't, I just assume they live in, in trees, but whatever. We'll get past that. Bumblebees also make honey, but underground. Yes. Okay. But the honey is just to feed their colony. Okay, all right, okay, all right. All right, but we're not here to talk about bumblebees. We love bumblebees. They're adorable. They kind of look fuzzy. They vibrate, apparently, uh, and tomatoes love them. But you do work on honeybees. Yes. And honeybees, we most likely, at some point in our lives, have consumed a product that uses honey in it. Yes. With this being said, do you prefer beverages sweetened with honey? Or are you more of a sugar person? I am more a honey person, of course. All right. Now, is that biased? Because you work with honeybees. I want I want to clear the air. Is it possibly because you work with honeybees that you prefer the honey more? Actually, yes. <laughs> and that's why I got interested in honeybees. Because when, oh, okay. when I was choosing bachelor program to study, I chose veterinary medicine in order to focus in honeybees because Mexico is in the top 10 of countries that produce honey uh, and is in the top five of countries that uh, that exports honey. So it's a big industry. I had no idea. I mean, I I don't know anything about honey production, but I, I would have not thought that Mexico was a big honey producer. Yes, it is. And if I think to the honey that's in my pantry right now, uh, I know sometimes the honey is like named after the flower that the honeybee eats eats pollinates uh, the most yes the nectar that comes from that flower has pollen so in order to know the botanical source it's necessary to identify and to quantify the number of pollen grains so we can say that that honey has a botanical origin or source based on the pollen and the amount of pollen because the plants or flowers have different uh, kind of pollen 
Okay, so now this is this is interesting, and, and I think I might be going more into the food side of this, but do you have to determine the, the pollen content in the honey before you can say, oh, this is clove honey, or this is wildflower honey? Yes. Or can you just, like, put the bees in a room? I don't, I don't know how bee farming works, but can you just say, oh, well, we gave them this, so we assume that it's clove honey, or do you have to test it? The best in order to prove that origin of the pollen and the honey is to test it. However, that for the beekeeper, that is an extra cost. In the modern beekeeper, beekeepers move their hives where the crops are blooming. I will use two examples, canola flowers or blueberries. Those crops bloom in, in different times. So if you move your beehives in that crop, you know that most of the honey that you will get comes from those flowers. Yeah, okay. So then I'm assuming that they taste different, the honey, in the long run? Totally. And and you, like, you could tell the difference? You know the difference between these, or...? Okay, I will answer first. Yes, the honey can have different colors and taste. And the difference is because of the flowers and the minerals that are in the in the soil where those flowers are. So you can see the, the difference. Honey from canola nectar is light and is it is it kind of like a, a bottle of wine? <laughs> like people are like, oh this wine has like under notes of cherry and oak. Yes. Is, are there people who like taste honey and are like you could tell that this honey was harvested in late April. Is, does that exist in the honey community? Yes, they are honey testers. And also, you can feel the difference between the fla- uh, between the honey. And going back to the point where the, the colors, about the colors, is that in, in the market, people rather like honey than dark honey. The color spectrum from the honey could be really light almost as water to really dark so you will find the difference between the taste and of course the the smell the honey that sells more easy is light color honey interesting you know what i never i i i'll tell you what i never thought about any of this you know i have been every once in a while i'm gifted like a really nice honey and i'm like yeah that was a nice honey but a lot of times I just buy the big bottle with the bear. I like the bear. He's cute. <laughs> you know, uh, the squeezy bottle. I think it's cute. So I just buy that one. So clearly I'm not a sophisticated honey consumer. But let's get into what you research. Because it, believe it or not, everyone listening, believe it or not, your main job isn't just talking about how delicious honey is. You, you do some other work on top of that. Could you give us a brief introduction to what you're studying? Yes, Luigi. My project focuses on study bee health and why it is important. Well, the honeybees are responsible of pollinate more than 30% of the food that we consume here in Western societies. So bees are affected as us. We They are affected by different stressors, parasites, bacteria, fungi, and more stressors as pesticides, for example. So... In my project, we are focusing on a study a mite that is an external parasite that feeds upon the hemolymph. The hemolymph is the name of the blood of the bees. 
This might be in size if we compare it with the size of the bee. Let's imagine that the, the size of, the, of this parasite is the size of one fist in our body. So it's big enough. This might, it affects the larvae, the pupae, and the adult bees. So imagine that you are with this mite that is sucking your hemolymph, that is the blood, during all your life. And this mite can reproduce inside the cells where the bees are developing from egg to adult bees. So imagine that I will use an example. You are developing in a cocoon, in a cocoon, and you have a mite feeding from you all the, that period of time. Also, this mite is able to replicate and transmit viruses to the bees. So you are not losing your blood. You are also getting infected by viruses and your immune system goes down. So this mite is responsible for the majority of colony losses here in Ontario. And in my project, we are focusing on selecting bees that are resistant, that express in more frequency mechanisms that resist against this mite. Why? Well, in the industry, many beekeepers control this mite. How? Using chemical products. But these products have different disadvantages. They contaminate the, the honey, and honey is for our consumption. The mite can develop resistance. So after a while, the products cannot or will not have effect anymore or is not, uh, the effect will be less. And the third, these products are toxic to the bees. So it's necessary to develop different control strategies. And we know that the honeybees have different mechanisms to resist this mite. I will mention two. One of the mechanisms is the grooming behavior. In the grooming behavior, the bee is able to use their mandibles and their legs to remove the, the mite from their body. And of course, the mandibles to bite it and kill it. And the other mechanism is called hygienic behavior. In the hygienic behavior, adult bees are able to identify the mite that is being reproduced inside the bees, the bee cell where the larvae or pupa is. So those adult bees are able to open that cell, remove that mite and kill it. And those mechanisms can be inherited, so genotypes of bees can produce offspring of bees with those mechanisms. So more bees are able to do that, and they are more, more sensitive to, to express those behaviors. I, I have to say, to start off, you were explaining how these mites work. The, the one thing that falls short in radio is that you couldn't see the faces that I was making. You were explaining <laughs> the mites sucking blood like the size of a fist on the bee's body. And I, my face was just like, oh my god, that sounds terrible. That was terrifying. You scared me. I, I'm terrified of these, these mites. That's that's like a horror movie. And yes, and you are not the only one that is terrified. The beekeeping <gasps> industry is terrifying as well. Yes. Oh, God, it, it sounds terrible, honestly. Uh, 
in these mites, are they are they popular? Do you find them in a lot of bee colonies? Is it just a few bee colonies? These mites are really common and they are spread worldwide. And Canada is not the exception. Australia or New Zealand, one of those, don't have those mites yet. Okay. So then, normally, we look at these mites and we're like, all right, we got to get rid of these mites. So the industry is like, okay, let's apply some pesticide. Is it a pesticide technically that they try to apply? Let's call miticide because it's mites. Yes. It's against mites. It's a miticide. Yes. I learned a new word. <laughs> so, so they apply these miticides sometimes, but it's not the best because sometimes the bees uh, don't react well with this miticide. Yes, you are totally right. And that's an issue because if we want honey, we need bees to be healthy. And if we want our plants to be pollinated, we need the bees to be healthy so they can pollinate the plants. Yes. So we get to the point where it's like, all right, these miticides, they're, they're okay, they're good, but we need something better. Yes, and good point uh, on that is because when you have mites, let's say that you are a beekeeper, you have your own, you know that the mites are spread worldwide and your colonies will have mites. But in what moment, in which moment, you should apply these uh, products? So there is a point that will indicate in which moment you will apply. And in Canada, if the mites reach 3% of infestation, it's time that you apply the miticides. Okay, and how, how does one know if you have 3% infestation? What do you, do you count the mites? Yes, you take a, oh. a, a sample of, okay. of bees, <laughs> put them in alcohol wash. Unfortunately, you kill them, the bees. However, it's something that can help you and help the whole colony. So you put those bees in alcohol, 70%. You shake the, the, the yard for two, three minutes. And later you pour the sample and you will put a, a mesh underneath. So the bees will stay on above the mesh and the mites will pass. So you count them and you make the, the, the relation or the rate how, how many mites per bee. Okay. All right, so so we're able to count count, I guess, the amount of mites. Yes. So that when they're like, all right, maybe we don't need to apply the miticite just yet, but then say you do this in three weeks, and you're like, okay, now we need to apply this miticite. But ultimately, you're not working with the miticite. You are working with, you know, selecting better bees. Yes, more resistant bees. The idea of my project is having or selecting for resistant bees that reduce the mite infestation. So if we have those mite infestation levels below the point that is the threshold that we need to apply uh, the treatment, 3%, if our colonies have a mite infestation lower than 3%, that means that we don't need to apply miticides. And that's a good thing. Exactly. Okay. All right. All right. All right. So when we think about selective breeding, I think about like, you know, cows and dogs and things like that. Uh, you know, we, we choose the traits that we like. 
We do it with food all, oftentimes too, like seedless watermelons and, you know, things like that. We, we choose the things that we like and we try to get rid of the things that we don't like. And you're telling me that in certain cases, bees have like these built-in mechanisms that help them against these mites. You, you gave two. The first one being that they can bite the, they can eat the what, mandible. What was that? Grooming behavior. The bees groom. Okay. Yes. So basically, they use their their legs and mandibles to remove their mite from their body. Okay. So it's it's kind of like uh, how dogs they just like itch at themselves. Exactly. They, they flick the fleas off. Exactly. And then they kind of bite. They like you ever see the dogs? They just kind of like bite their leg. Yes, yes. So bees, it's just like the, the bumble. Would we be willing to say that honeybees are? No, we're not going to say honeybees are like dogs. Scrap that. <laughs> uh, there was the grooming behavior. This is them biting and scratching and kicking the mites off. Awesome, we love that. And then there's a second one, which was like keeping the house clean. Hygienic behavior. Hygienic behavior. Okay. Hygienic behavior. So could you explain what the hygienic behavior is? Yes. In the hygienic behavior, honeybees within the hive are able to identify those cells that contain bees in development from larvae or pupa. Those bees are able to identify if those cells have mites inside and if the mite is being reproducing inside. So those bees open those cells and take the mite out. All right, so these these cells, when you say cells, we're talking like the honey honey honeycomb? Exactly. The comb is formed by wax, and the comb has cells made by wax. So the bees use the combs for three purposes, or the cells for three purposes. The first one is to storage honey. The second is to storage pollen. Honey is for energy. Pollen is for protein source. And the third is for brood. The queen is able to lay to lay an egg inside those that, that cell, and a new bee will develop from that egg. So that's like if you put me as a baby in a carriage and you filled it with ice cream and beef jerky, <laughs> and I. And I eat the ice cream and the beef jerky until I grow old and I'm ready to do other things? Yes. But, of course, the nutrition from each component is even. It's a, yeah, right? Like, we, my analogy wasn't perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'll give myself, like, a C-plus on that analogy. When the larva that is growing from that egg is almost reaching the point of pupa, the adult bees cap that cell with wax. So before that time, the mite is able to identify the, the timing and go underneath that larva and hide there. So when the other bees put the cap of wax on top of that cell, the mite is able to move towards the larva or pupa phase and eat from there. So in the hygienic behavior, the bees that are outside walking on the comb, they are able to identify that that cell, remove the cap, and remove the mite that is there. Yeah, so these mites are sneaky. These mites are smart. Oh, yes, they are. 
<laughs> that's that's kind of crazy. So they're like they're like sneaking their way in and then hiding so no one else can see them. Exactly. But if anyone has something to say about it, it's you. Because you're selectively finding bees that are good at finding the mites. Well, yes, an our program basically is selecting for less mite infestation rates. In particular, the mite population growth. Here in Canada, we have the seasons really defined. Winter is winter, snow, cold, and summer is summer, hot. And the bees also have a cycle according with the environment and with the season. In the winter, there is not brood because there is not food outside. And in late spring and summertime, there is brood because there is food outside. So the colonies are able to, to rear more brood. And with this, the mite population also matches with the colony population. If the big colony population increases, the mite population increases because there is brood. So we are focusing on selecting for mite population growth, which means we count where we perform two assessments of the mite infestation. One in the, sp in the spring and another one in the fall. We compare them. If the number of mites in the fall is higher than in the spring, in that colony, that means that the mite population grow. And opposite, if the mite population reduced or didn't decrease, that means that the mite is not reproducing there. The mite population is not growing. So we are selecting bees for mite population growth, that is for low mite population growth, like which is our resistant genotype, and the high mite population growth. So the mite is growing, uh, the mite population is growing a lot and it's a susceptible genotype. Why we are doing this, also selecting for the high, the, that is a susceptible, because we want to compare our genotype that we want. And when we are selecting for, let's say, low varroa growth, we don't know if we are selecting for groom, uh, groomer bees, hygienic bees, we don't know. We know that we are selecting just for my, for low my population growth. The bees will do their things, and we are uh, looking at that as well. Okay, so no growth of mites or decreased growth of mites, that's good. Yes. And you ultimately want to find if there's a way to uh, breed bees or at least selectively choose bees that are good at doing that. Exactly. Okay, so this is, it's almost as if you're filling out like a job application. Like we're looking for bees that are good at grooming these mites and we're looking for bees that are good at housekeeping. That's correct. All right, well that... Sounds hard. <laughs> like I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be for real because you can't sit down with a bee and ask them questions. You can't say like, "Hey, how much do you hate mites? And do you like to bite mites and scratch mites off your back?" You can't do that. So exactly. for your main tool of observing, you just kind of watch the population of mites during the seasons. Yes. Okay. All right. Well, that is really all the time that we have today. Is there anything that you want to say before we uh, close up? Any any shout outs to some of your favorite bees or anything like that? Well, the only thing that I could add is that with this program or the main goal of this program 
is to help the beekeeping industry in Ontario because the methodology that we are using, we want to share that methodology with the queen breeders. So they can use that methodology, they can select their colonies and produce queens that express these mechanisms or these traits and beekeepers can buy queens from them. So we aim to reduce the mite infestation levels in Ontario. Okay, so if a queen has these behaviors, their babies are going to have these behaviors as well. Exactly. Uh, okay, so then we can just like sell or, or, or provide queens that have these traits and, and then that kind of trickles down through the whole colony. Yes, but the most important thing is the methodology because any queen breeder or even beekeepers if they want to, they can do that because, or we think that all the best things are from the others. From my neighbor has the best car than mine. Even that this is the, the same car, uh, oh, his car is better. Or with your with siblings, oh, I, my brother has a blue toy and I had a red one. The blue is better than mine. But with this methodology, we aim to show beekeepers and queen breeders that they can have really good bees choosing from their own stock and those bees are adapted to the to the area so it's an advantage instead to buying queens from different places that express those behaviors as well okay so this is kind of like empowering the bee farmers to help their own populations that is right all right that's some really cool stuff well thanks so much for chatting with us today I learned, honestly, once again, I woke up this morning not thinking anything about honeybees, and I learned so much. I don't even know where. I, I'll, I'll probably go into my kitchen cabinet at home right now and look at the honey and pretend like I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Excellent. And if you want uh, real honey, buy at the University of Well, the Honey Bee Research Center, or buy from your local beekeeper. Okay, everyone, you hear that? No more bottles with the bear shape with the squeezy bottle. That's it. Never buying another one of those again, <laughs> unless it's filled with, like, real good honey. Exactly. Unless, yes, unless it's uh, buying from a, re a real good honey. Because we also, at the Honey Bear Research Center, we also sell... You have the, the bears? Bear yards. Yes! <laughs> yes! Okay, I'm definitely getting... I'm gonna get one now. Just because you have the bear. Because it's so cute. <laughs> Alright, thanks so much for talking with us, Alvaro. It was a true pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, this chat with Alvaro maybe didn't ease anyone's worries about killer bees, but it certainly gave a different light on the concept of bees killing things. But not to be a killjoy, here at We Know Some Stuff, we like to do fact checks at the end of every episode. And by we, I mean just me, because I'm, I'm We Know Some Stuff. Both Alvaro and I listened to this episode a bunch of times, and we did come up with one thing that needed to be fact-checked. Earlier in the episode, Alvaro was saying that these mites are worldwide. However, there is one country, as of the recording of this episode, that has not been affected by these mites, and it is Australia. New Zealand was mentioned, but unfortunately, New Zealand has fallen victim to yet another mite. That concludes today's fact check, but we are going to end on a sweet note. If you're looking to purchase some local honey and you happen to be in the Guelph area or have access to the internet, you can look up hbrc.ca. That is the Honey Bee Research Center out of the University of Guelph. 
where you can find all kinds of delicious honey-based products and things that are less delicious like candles. But now the episode's over and we need a buzz off. So thanks for listening to another episode of We Know Some Stuff.